welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Broad Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sagade. I'm the host of this show. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Dr. Mary Joy Weathersby, MD, F-A-C-O-G. I'm going to tell us a little bit about Dr. Mary Joy, but today we are talking about cesarean sections everything basically that you need to know about a c-section dr mary joy weathersby is a board certified obgyn by the american board of obstetrics and gynecology she loves the practice of obstetrics and gynecology she enjoys women's care she feels gynecology and obstetrics women's care is incredibly vital to the care of the whole family as women are often the gatekeepers to healthcare in the family. It gives her great pleasure to take care of our members in the adolescent, reproductive, menopausal, and postmenopausal stages of their lives. She works with a group of dedicated physicians, nurses, and staff to enjoy high quality service to each of her patients. And she involves her patients in every aspect of their healthcare needs. She believes in the mind, body, and soul connection. In her spare time, whenever that is, she relaxes by playing tennis, golf, and soccer, participating in other outdoor activities, learning a new language, writing, and listening to music. Volunteer work is also very important to her. She sees it as a way to give back to her community and reach out to the communities in need. She has a strong faith, which compels her to love and go the extra mile for each and every person, regardless of their situation or circumstances in life. With regards to her educational background, she got her bachelor's degree from the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, medical degree from the East Carolina University School of Medicine, and she did her residency at the New York Medical College. She's a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist. Dr. Mary Joy Weathersby, thank you for coming to CocoaPods podcast today. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much. It's a beautiful, lovely introduction. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Thank you for having this podcast. It's very well needed, very much needed. Thank you. Thank you. So, what is a C-section? You know, what is a cesarean birth and how common is a cesarean birth? Well, a C-section, it means an abdominal delivery. And ultimately, there's only two main ways to deliver a baby. The most common is the vaginal delivery, again, from the vagina. And then if it does not happen in that direction, abdominal, and it's a surgical procedure. So patients will need some type of anesthesia. And oftentimes the anesthesia is an epidural where they're still awake most of the times. There are some situations where this is not true, but most of the times they are awake and they do not feel what's going on. And that should be tested prior to the start of the surgery to be sure that anesthesia is correctly applied. But they can feel pressure and movement, but not actually sharp pain. This is where the surgeons, the OBGYNs make an incision. In the lower portion of the abdomen, which is a little bit above the hairline, oftentimes, of, of the female anatomy. And we go through different layers 
of the body until we get to the uterus. The uterus is the organ that actually hosts the baby. That's its, that's its big major function. It has a, a, some other functions, but the big major function is that. And we deliver the baby from the uterus and then we repair the uterus, placing sutures and that and repair the, the other layers of the abdominal cavity. And that is your C-section. <laughs> wow. Oftentimes it's not too long. Yes, yes. So what, how long does that surgery take? I mean, for like someone that this is their first cesarean section, there's no scar tissue. And then how long does it take if you've had a couple of C-sections before? Yeah, good question. There is definite variances. And the main reason is the scar tissue and how much you have to go in and sometimes release or reduce some of the scar tissue from prior surgeries, either prior C-sections or even other prior abdominal surgeries. For somebody who's never had abdominal surgery and let's say, you know, have a usual normal anatomy, typically the entire process can be as short as 20 minutes. It's really not a very long process. And the recovery period on average can be pretty good. Most people are able to go home in 48 hours, but you don't have to go home in 48 hours. You have really up to four days to stay and you can just kind of stay and get your bearings in the hospital if you desire. Yes, thank you. So in the United States, about one in three babies is delivered by cesarean birth. So there's also what we call an elective C-section as compared to an emergency C-section. Can you just briefly tell us what the difference is between an elective C-section and an emergency C-section? Yes. Elective means you are not in any high stress situation. It means that you come in, it's already scheduled, and it's scheduled for different reasons. One of them could be you've had a C-section before and you decided to have another one. Another one could be your baby's presentation. The head is not down. And so we don't routinely try to deliver babies when their head is not down vaginally. We try to go ahead and elect to do a section. Another one could be that, you know, the baby, if you're diabetic and your baby size is you know, so large, up to nine to 10 pounds, it may be some risk of trying to do it vaginally. Those are some elective reasons. And another elective reason may have nothing to do with the mother at all. It really could be baby may have cardiac issues or may have other issues where we need a surgical team, more so for the baby, we need a NICU team to repair certain conditions in the baby right when the baby is born. And the thought is to have that team assembled more in an elective situation versus a unpredictable when a a woman would deliver a vaginal delivery. Those are a few reasons for an elective. There are some others. Typically, elective is more controlled and it's less stressful. Now, the stressful meaning on the patient and definitely some level of stress on the doctors too. Now, the emergency is just that, meaning there's different reasons for emergency. The baby's heart rate could be down or maybe there's a cord that prolapsed or mother may have a seizure, uh, preeclampsia. But really in that situation, you're going to control and stabilize uh, mother first before you do anything. And that's not necessarily a reason actually for an emergency C-section. There's other reasons, but for the emergency C-section, it's just that. It's a stressful, high-intense situation where you need to get the baby out quickly. And if a patient already has an epidural, you can use that existing epidural and deliver the baby. If it does not, sometimes those are the reasons why we may need to put the mother under general anesthesia, meaning it's a quick way 
to have the mother go to sleep, to not feel the pain. The only problem with the general anesthesia is that babies also get that. So that means we are not working in that 20 minute time frame. Typically, we are getting the baby out in under a minute. And as an OBGYN, you are trained to be able to get a baby out in less than 60 seconds and deliver the baby and in such situations. So Dr. Mary Joy, thank you so much for that response. Now, before we really dig into cesarean section and all the nuances of a cesarean section, let's go back in history. I mean, is there anything you can tell us about the history of a cesarean section? How long has it been in existence? You know, can you tell us something about the history of a cesarean section? It's kind of interesting. We do name cesarean section after Julius Caesar. It's interesting to have that, but also, history kind of tells us that he probably didn't have a C-section. <laughs> so it's named after someone who probably was not born by a C-section. <laughs> and you're, you're right about that. And I'm going to tell us briefly about some of the history behind a C-section. So a cesarean section, sometimes called a C-section, is necessary based on the health of the mother or the baby. In other cases, it's not necessary. But the history of cesarean section dates back as far as ancient Roman times. Pliny the Elder suggested that the great Julius Caesar was named after an ancestor who was born by C-section. During this era, the C-section procedure was used to save a baby from the womb of a mother who had died while giving birth. The mother of Julius Caesar himself lived through childbirth, therefore eliminating the possibility that the ruler was himself born by caesarean section. Ancient Jewish literature from Maimonides suggests that the surgical delivery of a baby was possible without killing the mother, but the surgery was rarely performed. Maternal survival rates would have been low after the procedure back then due to the risk of bleeding and infection because this was prior to the advent of antibiotics. The first recorded case of a mother surviving the surgery was in the 1580s by Segasosen, Switzerland, where Jacob Neufer, who was a pig gelder, is said to have performed the operation on his wife when she was in labor and not progressing. The mother survived the operation and went on to have five more successful deliveries virginally. So the caesarean section is credited as being named after the great Julius Caesar. While the exact timeline is debatable, the University of Washington reports <coughs> that some believe Caesar was the first one to be born via C-section. The name is actually derived from the Latin word sidere, which means to cut. Again, while Caesar might get credit for the name, historians believe that C-section was used before his time. And it was primarily used to help birth babies whose moms were dying or died from birth. Because of this, no narratives exist for mothers who had C-sections before 1500s. And despite the grim circumstances, there was a great deal of optimism surrounding babies born via C-section back then. 
According to the University of Washington, such babies were believed to have great strength and even mystical powers. Some of the Greek gods, such as Adonis, were believed to have been born through caesarean section. So now that we've talked a little bit about the history of caesarean section, and you have talked to us about some of the reasons why a woman would have a caesarean section. But can we recap on some of the reasons why a woman from a mom's point of view would need a caesarean section? Typically, if she's had multiple C-sections in the past, it's often given a a repeat C-section. If baby have certain conditions such as cardiac issues or certain significant, not every cardiac issue, most cardiac issues still can deliver vaginally. It's some certain very specific conditions in, in which a mother still can have a vaginal delivery, but it is necessary for the setup, meaning the the surgical pediatric surgical team to be available to have it more in an elective controlled condition. That's the reason. So this is a smaller subset of people. This is not the majority of congenital cardiac diseases. The majority of congenital cardiac diseases can deliver vaginally. There's a small subset that sometimes we may consider C-section electively for them. And then you have babies that are not in the vertex presentation, meaning the head is not down. We don't electively try to deliver breech babies vaginally any longer for certain risk. There's more risk involved with doing that. So now when babies are born breech or a different position when the head is not down, we do elective C-sections. Now, even prior to doing elective C-sections, there are a few other things that we can try, meaning external cephalic version for those babies that are breech or different presentation. But you have to meet certain criteria for that. And let's say that you do meet certain criteria for that. There's a chance that it may work and we're very happy when it does work and you can go on to deliver vaginally. There's a chance that it's not successful. And if it's not successful, that's okay. You go on to deliver by C-section. So malpresentation, we call it. Sorry, this external cephalic version, can you explain to us in layman's terms what you're doing when you perform in a woman that the baby is breech, that is the butt is coming first, and she's really trying to have her baby vaginally, even though you said the standard of care now is that we don't purposely deliver a baby vaginally because of risks. But there are some things we can do as OBGYNs to help maybe achieve a vaginal delivery of a breech baby becoming a vertex baby. Can you explain that to us? That one. Let's say that the mother, what we look for is for the mother to be around 36 to 37 weeks. And the reason why we want to wait, the babies that are breached at 31 weeks, they have a very good chance of changing. So we don't get too concerned until later on. Around 36 weeks and above, they have less and less chance for changing their position. So around that time, it's okay to go ahead and start beginning to see what presentation the baby is in. And what is going to be the mode of delivery or the likely mode of delivery? Because things can still change even at the last minute. That does happen in OBGYN. Now, what we do when that baby is is breech or butt down or maybe transverse even is we take the mother and we typically like to do this in a labor unit and we'll do an ultrasound of the mother to see that they have enough amniotic fluid. 
The amniotic fluid, when it's really low, that's a risk factor. And we typically will not do a version for that reason. Uh, let's see, we take a look at the placenta and just make sure the placenta looks good. If it's anterior or posterior, it's still fine. It's just something good to know where the placenta is and make sure there's enough blood flow to it. We look and see if the mother is contracting. We typically don't like to do this procedure when mothers is already contracting. It could be a sign of early labor and we need to be cognizant of that to not try to do a version during labor. That's not a good time to do that. And also we're looking to see the baby's trace and making sure that baby is happy, meaning the baby's heart rate. We're kind of monitoring that. And if the baby is happy and if all things are looking good, and let's say that this is a mother who, a first time mother who's never had any other deliveries or has had other vaginal deliveries, then what we try to do is actually position ourselves with a clockwise and a and also a counterclockwise position. What you start off with one clockwise, and then after some time, if you need to, you go to a different counterclockwise. But what you're doing is actually truly lifting that mother's belly, lifting the baby, the uterus, you're actually holding it, and you can feel it as an OBGYN, and you're trying to lift the baby a little bit and kind of encourage the baby to do a movement, and you're trying to feel the most natural position that the baby can move. And that's part of the reason for your ultrasound, you're watching and you see it. And sometimes baby will kind of take the cue and go ahead and move in that clock, in that clockwise and sometimes in that counterclockwise position and you kind of watch and monitor sometimes we like to do three or four attempts and typically after the fourth I I, I typically will say okay this enough it's going to work or it's not going to work sometimes you can do this with one person and sometimes you can do it with two now two people actually help two OBGYNs it's actually helpful to do that or two two providers um, it's helpful to do that and afterwards you're watching the baby's tracing to make sure baby's not stress, make sure baby's heart rate is good and normal, and you're watching mother's fluid, making sure no kind of imminent labor. The reason why we also try to choose it at 36 to 37 weeks is if she goes into labor, especially at 37 weeks, she's already what we call term. Term is defined by 37 weeks, and that way she can deliver at term and have less risk for preterm delivery complications. Let's say that if we waited to 38 or 39 weeks, typically the room is less and less and your success is less and less. It can be done then, but typically your success rate will definitely decrease. So you've got your better position at the 36, 37, when you've given the baby enough time to see what position it's going to be, the baby is given a chance for being closer to term or at term, and the baby has some additional room for movement that it may be successful. If it's successful, we're always happy, but we also know that this doesn't come with a typically high success rate. It's about maybe 60 or so. It's not a very high success rate. But when you're looking for to try to deliver, it's a good option. It's a good option if you meet the, the criteria. Wow, thank you. And so you were talking about other presentations. Like, so if the baby was lying transversely across, then we would do a C-section. Like if it's a persistent transverse, yeah. the baby is just lying across the mother's womb, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, as a patient, can I request a C-section? I mean, can I just come and say, doctor, I don't want to try. I I don't (laughs) want to try a vaginal birth. My baby is term. I want a C-section. That is called um, patient requested elective C-section. Can you tell us some about that? 
That's interesting. That and that is um, ACOG is the governing body for OBGYN. And so what they do is they make a lot of guidelines. When I was talking about meeting criteria or guidelines, this is who I'm talking about, this board that gives us the guidelines for all the different things that we do as OBGYNs across the nation. So these are the same guidelines that every OBGYN is using across the nation. And so, yes, they have made a guideline that says C-section on request, which is interesting. Most OBGYNs, this is, is rather peculiar because we don't typically just do a C-section section to do a C-section, but patients do have that guideline that says, I don't want to do anything. All I want to do is show up and have an elective C-section. I don't even want to try to deliver vaginally. Nothing is wrong with my baby. Nothing is wrong with me. All I want to do is get an epidural and have a C-section. So if that is the case, believe it or not, a woman really can do that, really can just say, that's all I want. And has that happened? It has not often. Honestly, most women actually do want the the trial or most women do want some level of experience in something. But there are a few, very few that that I at least have had. And and I would always ask why, what is the reason? And if the reason is pain, that is one thing I definitely like to talk about because I really would like to not have a patient be so scared of pain to not even try at all. And what we do educate is that we do have different ways of controlling pain. And so in different situations, I have been able to talk to patients about pain management, that we can do some early pain management with IV medicines. We can do early epidural. I myself do not have a set time when a patient can have an epidural. I am fine with the patient having an epidural even at one centimeter or even, you know, she hasn't even done too much, even when I'm just what we call ripening the cervix when I'm just beginning. And I do that because I do see some patients have a fear of any level of pain, which honestly, labor and delivery is called labor and delivery for a reason. This is a painful process, but it is an amazing process that I would love for every patient to not shortchange themselves. So some have agreed to have proper pain management and have done very well. And some says, nope, I just want to Nothing at all is going on. I just want to do it. And I understand good pain management and I just want to do it. And they are able to do that. Absolutely nothing wrong. They are able to just electively have a C-section at term. And we typically do elective C-sections at 39 weeks. And the reason for that 39 weeks is to decrease some of the risk, again, of prematurity. And even though you, we said term is at 37, there's still certain risk of prematurity, such as lung maturity, such as bowel maturity, and eyes and other things that we're looking for that can still occur even past 37 weeks. The chances of them occurring is less and less and decreased even at 39 weeks. It's still not zero, but it's at a level that we, ACOG, has deemed is what we call an elective time if we're going to do an elective procedure. The, the risk factor is low enough that it's okay, if you will, or it's deemed reasonable to go ahead and do that procedure meaning that C-section or that delivery or what have you. Wow, thank you, thank you. How about this vaginal birth after a cesarean section? So for one reason or the other, the woman tried to have a first vaginal delivery. It didn't happen. Or she came and wanted her first delivery by (laughs) C-section. And now she's read about all the benefits of a vaginal delivery. And now she wants 
a VBAC, which we call a vaginal birth after cesarean section. Can you tell us some things about that? Yes. And yes, that does happen where, oh, I wish I tried vaginal and I just didn't try at all. And or and that's one case. And there's another case where well, my baby was breached and wasn't successful in cephalic version. And this time I want to try it vaginal. And there's other cases where I tried and I tried and I tried. I got to fully dilated and I just couldn't push my baby out. That happens. Or I tried and I tried and I only got to, you know, four centimeters. I never could dilate more than that. There's many, many different scenarios. But yes, in all of those scenarios, the first thing that we look for is the type of scar that was on the uterus. And it's very important because a lot of patients will say, oh, well, they went transverse on my belly. And what's on your belly may not be the same as what's on your uterus. So your OBGYN will always want the opno, the operative report. That tells us the type of incision that was made on the uterus. And that lets us know your risk factors for a VBAC. Now, the vaginal birth after cesarean. If your scar was on your uterus, was a vertical scar, meaning going up and down, or like a classical or any different versions of that, you are not a candidate for a VBAC. According to ACOG, the guideline board that makes these determinations, and they do that because of the risk. The biggest risk is uterine rupture. The first time the uterus has an incision on it, we call it a scar. That uterus will never be as strong as it was if it did not have a scar. So the uterus continues to be weakened and it remains weakened each and every time it gets additional scars. It is more weakened when it gets a scar that goes up and down. And so it's weakened enough to where potentially a bigger size, now a pregnancy, poses a lot of strength on the uterus. It makes the uterus work really hard. And the uterus will expand to accommodate the pregnancy. And during labor, that's a lot of work also on the uterus. So if you have a scar that's up and down, you're working something that's already weakened, it has a very good chance of open up. If it opens up, that's catastrophic. That is an absolute emergency. This is where you are, even in the hospital, it can go sour. Even when you're already in the hospital, this is an immediate emergency where you must get a C-section right away. And even having a C-section, there's still an unfortunate potential that mother can be compromised and definitely baby can be compromised. And compromised including the worst compromise of all. Those situations when the uterus have those type of scars, we do not do that. Now, let's say it has the type of scar. There's only one type of scar that we're looking for that we call low transverse, low segment. Along the lower segment of the uterus, it's a transverse incision. That's the usual incision for most C-sections, but not all C-sections have that. Some C-sections need to have that up and down scar because at that time of C-section, perhaps the baby was transverse presentation or perhaps they didn't have enough room and they had to move upwards to get the baby out. Or perhaps the baby was so early that lower uterus segment was not fully developed. There are reasons OBGYNs have to make those type of scars. So we do need those scars, but it does mean in the future, you may or may not be a candidate for VBAC. Let's say that you have the lower transverse scar. Now, are you, do you still have the risk for 
a uterine rupture? Yes, you do. The risk is still there because again, that uterus is scarred. It's weaker than it started off, but the risk is not as high as the other type of scars. And so what we do tell patients is number one, if your op note lets us know that your scar is lower uterine transverse and we can obtain op notes from the hospital or from wherever you had your C-section, we can obtain it. We can proceed with letting you know the risk. There's still risk. Now, Typically, patients who never went into labor and they had a C-section because they were breached, the babies were breached, or because they didn't want to try, they just had a C-section, or for other reasons, though meaning but never labored, typically our guidelines, ACOG, lets us know that the chances of having a successful VBAC is a little bit higher in those patients than patients who, history is a great predictor, than patients who tried and tried and tried, but never got more dilated than four or whatever the number. The number is not really that important. It's just the fact that they never got all the way dilated or they were never able to really push that baby all the way out. So you have a higher chance of doing that again. So that means you have a lower chance of having a successful VBAC. And we explain this to patients and we explain that the decision is yours. I'm very quite comfortable with whichever decision my patients make. I just want them to be fully informed. So sometimes some patients will say, well, it got to four and I really want to try to get to more. Absolutely. Let's try. The only problem is because that happened before, you now have an increased chance of that happening again, but we can still try. Now, when we do VBACs, one thing that's particular about VBACs is we cannot induce that is because there is a greater risk of that rupture when we electively put medicines inside of a woman to make them go into labor. So what we have to do is now wait until you go into labor. And sometimes that happens. And unfortunately, sometimes it actually doesn't happen. You don't go into labor. And so if you don't go into labor, we don't have another choice than to do a repeat C-section for safety of mother and baby. Typically, I will allow patients to wait until their 40th week, meaning their due date. And if they go into labor before their due date, I'm very happy. We go ahead and do the VBAC if they're good candidates. Now, if they don't go into labor, I will let them know around your 40th week, we're going to need to have an elective repeat C-section because unfortunately, you never went into labor or you went into labor but didn't quite do it. When we do VBACs, we do them with a lot of caution, a lot of caution. And that's true for OBGYNs across the nation, because we know that risk of potential rupture. For myself, I like to put catheters inside internal monitors that lets me know the strength of the contraction, but not only the strength, the effectiveness of it. And I like to do that pretty early just to know. Now, we do know that uterine rupture really and truly can occur at any point in the VBAC. It can occur early. It can occur later. It it's very difficult. And like I said, it's a very high tense, very immediate, must get to emergency. It's one of our really, really big emergencies that we must get that patient to the hospital, not to the hospital. She should already be in the hospital for a VBAC, but get that patient to the OR, to the operating room, if that should occur. Yeah. So that transverse skin incision is also called a finasteel skin incision. And there are nuances because if there's a different dad for each different pregnancy, so like the first pregnancy, the dad might have been 
over six feet and that might have been what we call cephalopelvic disproportion. But if the same mom is now in a relationship with someone that is not as tall, there are nuances and variances based also on the genetics of the father of the baby. Yes, that's true. What you're saying is very true. You could have maybe the first baby being a little bit bigger in size. And what we worry about is the, the peas. We say the pelvis, you know, the passenger being the baby. Is the passenger too big to fit the pelvis? Or the opposite direction? Is the pelvis not adequate to help the passenger, meaning the baby? And then we say the, the other one for, for the Pitocin, the pressure, you know, the medicines that we can give. Now, we always have to be careful for VBACs with the, the amount of medicines that we're given. And that's where I was talking about the internal catheters to kind of help guide with that. But we do know that even guided with that, the risk is still there.